You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem, and I'm your host, Hanok Teller. I'm very pleased to have everyone joining us. If this is your first time, don't forget to subscribe for the story is just shifting into really high gear. It would be really considerate if you could recommend this podcast to others. The Arab Revolt, which was a nationalist uprising by Palestinian Arabs in mandatory Palestine against the Palestine Mandate from 1936 to 1939, meaning those are the years of the revolt, resulted in widespread violence throughout the land. The Arab Revolt was so formidable and so sustained that the British military authorities needed all the help that they could get in repressing it. They turned to the Yishuv. The Yishuv is a term which comes up very often in our study of Israel. Yishuv refers to the Jewish settlement in Palestine. It is much easier streamlined and less cumbersome to simply refer to it as the Yishuv, the Jewish settlement. They were happy to cooperate. Haganah volunteers, Haganah was the Jewish Defense Forces, form special night squads under the command of Christian Zionist Ord Charles Wingate. Wingate, like many of his generation of Brit- from Britain, were well-versed in the Bible, and he regarded the various biblical prophecies about the return of the Jews to their land as something to be welcomed, in which he was very privileged and happy to participate. Wingate was a British intelligence officer posted to mandatory Palestine before the rebirth of the State of Israel. He was a Christian Zionist with a strong biblical belief in the restoration of Israel and always kept a Bible on him. During the 1930s, the Arabs launched a campaign of violent terrorism. To the chagrin of the often anti-Semitic British authorities, Wingate trained the Jewish community in defense and professional military tactics. Moshe Dayan later stated, he taught us everything we know. Wingate's bold support for Israel earned this non-Jewish hero the nickname Hayedid, the friend. Had he not died fighting the Japanese in World War II, Ben-Gurion said he would surely have become the first chief of staff of the IDF. Captain Wingate, who was later killed in action behind Japanese lines in Burma in World War II, joined Jewish settlers in implementing a method to foil Arab attacks that was pioneered by Yitzhak Sadeh. Sadeh began his military career in the Russian army during the First World War. He was decorated for bravery and rose to be a battalion commander. He emigrated to Israel in 1920 on hearing of the death of Joseph Trimpledore, whom he had met three years earlier. When Arab riots broke out in 1936, Sadeh joined the Haganah. He initiated a policy for defending settlements by going out to attack the marauding Arab bands rather than waiting for them to come and penetrate. In other words, the best defense is a good offense. Haganah field companies, which Sadek commanded, were formed to implement this strategy. He is also one of the founders of the Palmach, which we've already explained was the strike force and the elite units of the Haganah, and he became its first commanding officer in 1941. In 1945, he was promoted to acting chief of the Haganah general staff, and he coordinated resistance against the British. During the War of Independence, he took part in several operations, including the Battle for Jerusalem. So as the British were focused upon quelling the Arab revolt, they were ironically 
training participants in what would become a Jewish revolt against the British less than 10 years later. At this point, Jewish youth were at the point of desperation because of the events in Europe that were transpiring at the beginning leading up to World War II. And then they went into a frenzy with the Anschluss and the German annexation of Austria in March 1938. The spectacle in Vienna of public orgy of Jew baiting, such as elderly Jews on all four cleaning the streets of Vienna as the policemen had their arms folded, saying, finally, finally, Jews are doing something productive, as the crowd was jeering the Jews, doing something productive and not just counting their money. It had been conceived, it had been thought to be inconceivable that this could happen in a great modern center of civilization like Vienna. The outside world, which saw stills and footage of the Anschluss and how Jews were being persecuted and prosecuted in Austria, while they were shocked by the Nazi atrocities, they did nothing to help the Jewish victims. This is best portrayed by the Avian Conference in early July 1938. The Amen Conference was an important, yet not well-known tragic event, so let's give it some attention. The plight of Western Jewry after the Anschluss in 1938, that makes that March 1938, about 200,000 Jews, Western Jews, come under the Nazi heel. It made it to page one of the newspapers, and there was pressure in Washington to do something on their behalf. FDR and his cabinet had made a conscious decision that they would not do a thing. Unemployment in America following the Great Depression was catastrophic, and FDR had pledged to correct the situation. Allowing foreigners whose lives were at risk into the country would certainly not, would certainly not alleviate the employment crisis. But still, something had to be done. FDR, the consummate politician, had the perfect solution. Ten days after Hitler marched into Austria, FDR announced the formation of a conference of 32 countries to which to deal with the refugee problem. If in any way this smacked of hope for the Jews of Austria and Germany, this was dashed by the very invitation which stipulated that no country was expected to increase their quotas or their existing legislation. The most pressing problem facing Austrian and German Jewry was to get out. Their lives depended upon it. But how in the world could a conference be of any help whatsoever if from the get-go it would not remedy the problem that needed to be solved. The answer is this proposed conference was not intended to do anything. It was just a PR stunt to get pressure off Washington for being insensitive about humanitarian issue. FDR built the proposed conference for its every stitch of PR value. He could do nothing and appear like he was about to do something really grandiose. But if the world and the press was tricked, Hitler saw right through the baloney. At a speech in Königsberg, he commented regarding the Avian Conference, quote, I can only hope and expect that the other world that has so much sympathy for these criminals, meaning the Jews, will at least be generous enough to convert their sympathy into practical aid. We, on our part, are ready to put all these criminals at the disposal of the countries, for all I care, even on luxury liners, close quote. The U.S. and the rest of the world was fooled by all the press, Hitler was not. The president and cabinet were largely motivated by basically only the arrest and the suffering of one person, and that was Dr. Sigmund Freud. And it was his ill treatment that forced the U.S. to sponsor what would become the Avian Conference. It's so much easier for the mind to focus on one person 
than on a faceless mass populace, which is why six million did not mean as much as the suffering of one Anne Frank. The background of the conference was a commitment by all of the assembled to do nothing other than issue condemnation of how Hitler was abusing human rights. Now that would surely make him change his ways. The German press had a heyday at all the hyperbole of the West, who would not let any Jews in. The German press argued that the world was united in its hatred of the Jews. Only the Germans had the gumption to be most honest about it. Just two weeks before the conference convened, it was reported in the press that all Jews were being viciously attacked in Germany, subsequently in Austria, and authorities demanded immediate evacuation, evacuation of the Jews, and Jews would certainly have welcomed this, for there was not one Jewish family that didn't have at least two of its members incarcerated. But there was no way out, for no country was issuing visas. Regardless, thousands of Jews waited all night long outside of the embassies, waiting in vain to register their names. The fundamental question for America on the eve, and even after the conference, was not could America absorb more unemployed to its already millions, but could America live with its conscience of Hitler to get away with this extermination? The answer was a resounding yes, without compunction. America and England, who were the major powers of the West, worked feverishly that nothing should be done or accomplished at the conference. The most eloquent spokesman for Jewry was Dr. Chaim Weizmann, head of the World Zionist Organization, and the British made concerted efforts that he not be allowed to speak with anyone. The British doing everything they could to forbid Jewish immigration into Palestine. The conference was a fiasco, with the first two days devoted to fighting over who would chair the conference. France wanted the U.S. to chair it, and the United States wanted France to chair it, so that each could blame the other when the conference turned out to be a failure. Every country had a chance to speak, and each used this opportunity to explain why they could not change their immigration policy and allow in Jews. Australia, which today is 90% unpopulated, stated, quote, as we have no racial problem, we have no desire to import one. New Zealand said that it did not have territory suitable for refugees. Think about the fact that the South Island is almost today virtually uninhabited. Canada was only willing to attempt to find refugees in a haven different than their own country. In other words, they would said they would help to try and find haven in a different country, but they were certainly not welcome in Canada. Many other South and Central American countries said they could not accept anybody except for farmers. The amount of farmers that were in Germany and Austria in 1938 were the same number of internet technicians. These countries did not wish to accept doctors or lawyers or intellectuals into a country for fear they would be more intelligent than the locals. Peru also acted they would not accept intellectual class and added accurately that the United States has given us an example by its own restrictions. Argentina said that its population was one-tenth the size of the United States, yet it had already accepted the exact same number as the United States had, and therefore would accept no more. Heinrich Rottmann was a Swiss delegate, and he was an anti-Semite of note, having created single-handedly the Jewish passports be stamped with a red J. There was an open border between Switzerland, Austria, and Germany. Now Austria had become Greater Germany, and it since it was an open border, like the border between America and Canada, all you need to go over the border was a passport. Since there were easy access for Jews from Austria and Germany into Switzerland, 
He required this J on the passport, complained about the situation, and this made it so much harder for Jews, if not impossible, for them to travel. Rotman was the head of the Swiss border controls. He routinely sent Jews trying to cross into Switzerland back to Germany throughout the war, knowing what horrific death awaited them. Rotman's contribution to the conference was, when he got up to speak on behalf of Switzerland, quote, the Swiss have no more use for the Jews than the Germans do. At Avion, no country agreed to open their doors other than the Dominican Republic. The dictator of the Dominican Republic was willing to do this humanitarian act for a huge amount of money, and only for a limited time, and only agriculturists. And the dominant theory as to why he was wishing to do this was he wanted to bring in people that were light-skinned like Europeans to lighten up the color of the people in the Dominican Republic. The other theory I heard when I had a book launch for my book, Heroic Children, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, there was a gentleman in the audience from the Dominican Republic. He said what happened was, the dictator of the Dominican Republic was just not tenable for him to have his daughter educated in the Dominican Republic, and she was sent to school in France. When things began to heat up against the Jews, she told her father, there was only one girl who was my friend who cared for me and did not look at me askance and befriended me, and that was a Jewish girl. We do, we do not know the name of this girl, but thanks to her, uh, 10,000 were officially invited, and ultimately it was much less than this number, but it's all thanks to this one girl whose name we do not even know because of her kindness and her benevolence that lives were saved, and that's the only positive thing that happened from the Avian Conference. The conference was adjourned, accomplishing nothing other than giving the German press the vindication they sought. It was the greatest signal to Hitler that he could ever have hoped for, that he could literally get away with murder and the world would not do a thing. Thus, the Avian Conference, conceived to help the Jewish refugees, was in fact their death knell. As some reporters noted, Avian backwards spells naive. The conference also validated Weizmann's declaration before the Peel Commission regarding the condition of European Jews in the late 1930s. Said Weizmann, quote, The world is divided into places where they cannot live, in places that they may not enter. Palestine was excluded from the Avian agenda because of the British agenda, and they wouldn't even let Weizmann speak, as we've discussed. We're going to play a few snippets from the faces of the Holocaust clip about the Avian conference. The number of 100,000 of the Dominican Republic is incorrect, but as we said, it was officially 10,000, but they let in far less than that. In 1938, 32 countries and 24 volunteer organizations came together to address the escalating problem of Jewish refugees. Golda Meir, the 39-year-old representative from British Mandate Palestine, who later became Israel's first woman prime minister, was in attendance. She was granted observer status, but not permitted to participate in the proceedings. She watched from the sidelines, eager to see how the world's greatest nations would come together to save hundreds of thousands of Jews at the Evian Conference. On July 6, 1938, in an idyllic spa resort town on the France-Switzerland border, the Evian Conference commenced just 372 miles from where the Allied powers met to sign the Treaty of Versailles and end World War I 20 years earlier. 
By the time Franklin D. Roosevelt invited countries from all over the world to help solve the Jewish problem at the Avion Conference, Jewish refugees were a pressing issue for the rest of Europe, the Americas, and British Mandate Palestine. Over the course of the nine-day conference, every single country expressed sympathy for the state of the Jews, but few offered to actually help. Goldemeyer wrote, I wanted to get up and scream at them. Don't you know that these so-called numbers are human beings? People who may spend the rest of their lives in concentration camps? Or wandering around the world like lepers if you don't let them in? Germany's smaller neighboring countries claim limited physical capacity. Larger countries cited their own problems. In the midst of the Great Depression, many Americans believed that refugees would compete with them for their jobs and overburden their assistance programs for the needy. Brewing anti-Semitic sentiments in the States didn't help either. Despite having organized the conference, FDR didn't even send a political representative. Instead, his friend businessman Myron C. Taylor attended on the state's behalf. Canada refused to make a commitment, saying famously, none is too many. Chaim Wiseman, who would become the first president of Israel, observed, the world seemed to be divided into two parts, those where Jews could not live and those where they could not enter. In addressing the UN in 1979, the US Vice President Walter Mondale said, if each nation had agreed on that day to take in 17,000 Jews at once, every Jew in the Reich could have been saved. At Evian, they began with high hopes, but they failed the test of civilization. The country that made the largest gesture was the Dominican Republic, whose dictator president, Rafael Trujillo, offered to accept 100,000 Jews. Decades later, Mondale told the UN, as the delegates left Evian, Hitler again goaded the other world for oozing sympathy for the poor, tormented people, but remaining hard and obdurate when it comes to helping them. Days later, the final solution to the Jewish problem was conceived, and soon, the night closed in. At a press conference after the gathering, Goldemeyer remarked, there is only one thing I hope to see before I die, and that is that my people should not need expressions of sympathy any more. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and kindly give us a high rating, as this surely helps. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting TFJ code, you'll receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to telefromjerusalem.com.